We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I don't know, I'm just from the way you're sitting, is your lumbar okay? It, it could do with some adjustment. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you just touch it up for me, Doc? It is my specialty, but please don't call me Doc. Just call me Cam. Well, this uh, this film this week is an interesting one, to say the least. And I've got some uh, some interesting preamble before we even get to the review. So I think let's let's get right to it. Um, the people are dying to know what on earth are we talking about this week, Cam? We are tackling the 1983 Disney comedy Trench Coat, starring Margot Kidder and Robert Hayes. So we're going back to the obscure, weird 80s spy film realm, which is one of my favorites, along with the sort of 60s spy era. Uh, these 80s ones we keep pulling up are some some very fascinating things to dig into. And I think, uh, speaking of pulling up, I think we've definitely found perhaps the, the E.T. game video cartridge of uh, spy movies from the 80s. Had you ever heard of this movie? No. No, I, yeah. I've never heard of a single film starring Margot Kidder other than Superman 1 and 2. Um, I am a big fan of Brian De Palma's uh, Sisters. I really like that movie a lot. And I've seen The Amityville Horror, which was a big hit for her, but not a movie I particularly love. It's more iconic than good. Sure. Um, I mean, th- when I read about this film, I was very fascinated to check it out because I, you know, I like Robert Hayes. I like Margot Kidder. Oh, and, and I like um, David Suchet. Big thing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And also, um, Ronald Lacey, who is an actor. You know, I grew up seeing him in Raiders of the Lost Ark as like that villain, the kind of the, the short, bald guy whose face melts at the end of the movie. And I remember thinking for so long, boy, I never see that guy in anything else. Like, did he ever work after Raiders? And this podcast has now allowed me to realize he did work. And it was in a lot of these like 80s spy movies like this or Firefox. And this is, of course, another Disney one, which we we, you know, we had Condor Man cover that last year. Uh, actually, the day of recording, it was uh, just over a year ago, we released our Condor Man episode, funnily enough. So it's a nice little uh, you know, one year later, looking back on what could have been and what Disney were pumping out in the early 80s. And also, we are recording this on March 10th. We record a bit in advance, but um, the movie, I believe, was released on like March 11th or 12th. So we're almost doing this on the anniversary of Trenchcoat. <laughs> An anniversary I don't think anyone has ever celebrated. No, I've got it here. I'm sorry. It's March 11th, 1983 was when this movie was released. One day. We missed it by one day. Well, if you hang on two hours and we come back to this with the magic of podcasting, we could wait till midnight my time and then it is the 11th. 
I'll pop the champagne. Oh, I cannot wait. But um, I want to just say for the listeners, this film is not available in the United Kingdom. And I tried every single way of getting <laughs> hold of it. And by the, by the time I got a copy, it wasn't even a physical copy. It was Cam helping me out, use of a VPN and things like that. It paid for it, of course. But... Yeah, so we we apologize to UK listeners. You can't watch this film currently. Um, there are physical copies out there. Uh, I think there is a DVD release. If you have a region-free DVD player and you want to pick that up, go for it. But um, otherwise, I think just sit back and enjoy the uh, the ride. Yeah, we've run into this a couple times for me. I remember when we did the Ipcris file, that was actually very difficult for me to track down other than finding a physical DVD at that point that was actually quite expensive. And they ended up putting out like a really nice Blu-ray of the Ipcris file, like just a mere like handful of months later. But when we actually did it, it was quite difficult. And also those, uh, those Harry Palmer TV movies were brutal for me to get. They were tough. I, I struggled with those as well, to be fair. Um, and I might put this on par with those, but just to really sell how far I had to go. Now you rented this on YouTube to watch, and I was able to use your rental as well. But my your rental wouldn't work on my computer. Weird. So I ended up having to watch this on my phone. Oh well, it's not like the cinematography would lose anything. <laughs> no, I I don't think I would have gained much, but. Uh, it was, it was certainly one of the most bizarre moments in my life. I just, I, I really just sort of contemplate what am I doing? Sat hunched over on my desk looking at a small little iPhone SE as Margot <laughs> Kidder and Robert Hayes, uh, I don't know, spy jinx their way across Malta. Yeah, that's definitely one of the more unique viewing experiences I think either of us have had for any movie on this podcast, the fact that you had to watch it that way. I mean, I've had to watch a few on my computer, but uh, nothing to compare to the uh, the old iPhone special. No, th- th- and it, it certainly was special. Um, now, a lot of people wouldn't have heard this film because, as we said, it's kind of a hidden treasure. It's not even on Disney+, Plus, despite being a Disney film. There's, I mean, there's quite a few of those ones out there still. Oh, I want to complain about that for a second. Disney+, Plus is really frustrating for me because one of the things my sister and I have done once the pandemic started was we would watch, you know, every week or so, uh, like kind of a bad Disney movie or something like that. Like one of the old 50s, 60s, 70s kind of ones. And we would talk back and forth on, you know, Skype, just kind of message back and forth and do kind of a live commentary on some of these less prestigious movies. You know, Not your Mary Poppins or your old yellers, more so the more obscure stuff. Almost none of these movies are available on Disney+, Plus, a service that otherwise I actually really like. But there is a huge catalog of Disney films that they just do not put on there that are only available through these, like, $4.99 rental sites. And, like, Trenchcoat, we'll talk about it in a moment, but, like, it's not like it's, you know, not on Disney+, Plus because of egregiously offensive content or anything like that. They could easily throw it up on, whether it's Hulu in the U.S., Disney Star in Canada. It's just stupid they don't have it on their services. Yeah, it, it's definitely not a one of our dinosaurs is missing that really shouldn't be getting any airtime. Well, I can understand why they wouldn't want to put it on their family-friendly service. I like there's a few movies like that in the past, you know, where Disney, uh, you know, treads some very uh, awkward ground back in the you know 40s, 50s, 60s kind of films. Where I understand why they're not on their mainstream Disney Plus, but like there are a ton of movies that they made these live-action ones that were often 
you know, a little bit lower budget, but they just don't even bother putting on their service. Which it seems like an easy win, really. You would just just throw it on there. I mean, I okay, I I get that most people are buying Disney Plus to watch The Mandalorian. Sure, but there's gonna be someone who types into Disney Plus. Oh, I, hey, what about that Disney film from the eighties where they go to Malta? Hmm, look it up, trench coat, whack it in a Disney Plus, and there's nothing there. And if you're in the UK, that's it. That's the end of your search. But also, like Condor Man wasn't on Disney Plus, and it's like why? And that's had a history since. Like, it was in a Toy Story. Like, they've had further Condor mentions, whereas this is, well, well. like I said, <laughs> E.T. in the desert. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Well, Cam, I think we've hyped up the film enough. Let's talk about the Letterbox.com synopsis. And for a 90-minute film, this is a very short one, fortunately. I was really curious. You were either going to say it's unbelievably long or that no one even bothered to write one. <laughs> it's, it's just like, uh, please add. Here we go. Trenchcoat. An aspiring mystery writer becomes accidentally embroiled in an international plot during a two-week stay in Malta. Crap. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's a synopsis. That's really what people should be aiming for, to be fair. I mean, there were points in this movie where I started questioning, should we be doing this on Spy Hards? And I was looking up synopses going, uh-oh, uh-oh. Like, Me we may too. have to, like, I was... this one. Yeah. I can't believe that. I, I was watching it. I think two-thirds of the way down in my notes, I wrote down, is this actually a spy film? Yeah. And then I put in parentheses, oh, I guess. I got really concerned because it's really mixing its metaphors. Like, yeah. <laughs> It kind of is doing two things at the same time. It's more, a lot of the time, trying to evoke those like 1940s detective noir mm -hmm. stories. Yeah. And that's very much what the Margot Kidder character's into. So at a certain point, I began to get really confused going, wait a second. And then stopping the movie, searching up, you know, Wikipedia and stuff and going, okay, okay, we are going to get into a spy plot. And I would say when you get to the end of the movie, you're like, okay, yeah, there was an international spy plot. This counts. But some real mixed metaphors going on in this screenplay. Well, I mean, we'll get into it, but I, I think this film is very confused a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I have a distinct feeling you're not going to have much for me, Cam, but uh, <laughs> why don't you put your piercing rods all over me and tell me how this film was made? Good Lord. <laughs> well, that was in the it, film. Yeah, it's true. You called it. There is only so much production information on the making of Trenchcoat. It seems the demand is not really there. But it is an interesting time in Disney history. Disney, when we look at it now, this is the company that makes Marvel movies, Star Wars movies, Pixar. It dominates the entertainment landscape. It bought 20th Century Fox. It may buy every studio by the time this episode comes out. Who knows? It owns us. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Support Disney. Buy your tickets to Disneyland now. Um, but like in the 80s, they were actually struggling. Through the 70s and 80s, Disney was actually kind of falling apart. When you watch a lot of their movies of that era, they're pretty weak or they seem very cheap. And even their animated movies, which some are good, some are bad, but they were doing things like recreating old animation, like basically just drawing over top of old designs in their movies. Like if you look at 
the Maid Marian dancing scene in their Disney Robin Hood. It's actually just a retrace of a Snow White dancing scene from you know Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. They were just doing a lot of cost cutting and things like that. And by the time you got to the 80s, they really weren't looking at themselves as like, we are the family entertainment brand that parents run to. It was more like we've made some animated movies and some of them didn't really pan out. Like the Black Cauldron was a real bomb. And when I, I was a kid who was born in 1980. So if anyone would know Disney in the 80s, it would be like me because my parents would take me to Disney movies. But when I think of the movies I was seeing, it was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Cinderella, Pinocchio. It was kind of all the classics they were re-releasing in the theaters more so than a lot of the new releases, which I did see. Like things like Great Mouse Detective or um, Oliver and Company, but they were not the big ones anyone talked about. Was was Aristocats an 80s release? That's a 70s, but it is at that sort of point where they're starting to get a little recycle happy. Yeah, I, I wasn't so much a Disney kid growing up. I mean, I think every kid is kind of a Disney kid in some way, shape or form. I really liked Lady and the Tramp, um, Aristocats off the top of my head. I think I liked Fantasia, but it sounds like they were all pre this era. Yeah, like the golden age of Disney animation sort of ends in 1959 with Sleeping Beauty. And then you kind of get, there's some good stuff throughout the 60s, but it's sort of a little bit of a downward trajectory until you get to Little Mermaid in 89, which blows it all back up again. Little Mermaid was in 89? It was, yeah. So you had like the, yeah, you had the run of Little Mermaid in 89, followed by Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Aladdin, all that kind of grouped together that... uh, relaunch disney again license to kill and the little mermaid what a double bill that would have been i know right i know like the, the teenager would have in me would have really liked that <laughs> so at this point in time though in around you know probably 1982 disney was looking to rebrand itself as pitching movies more towards a mature audience moving away from being kind of the kiddie movie uh, company because those movies weren't really earning the grosses they probably wanted so they made a bunch of movies in this era that fell more towards i guess sort of a teenager young adult sort of audience demographic movies like tron the black hole um, never cry wolf and they would usually not open these movies with like a disney fanfare they would use you know another releasing company and it would be a few i think it was the next year in 1984 one year after trench coat they launched touchstone pictures which became their brand for more of that pg-13 entertainment that they'd put out in the years that would follow that makes a lot of sense actually now you say that it it, it this doesn't feel like a disney film like condor man you could say feels like a disney film because it's just so outrageous and, and, and campy and kid-friendly i would say and you could probably say the same thing about one of our dinosaurs is missing, despite its horrible racism. It's, it's you know, nannies and ninjas fighting each other. It's outrageous. But this, uh, despite it, I think, wanting to be a comedy, at least some of the time, uh, maybe misses that mark, it does not feel like a kid's film. Well, that's a question for when we dive deeper in, because I'm like, who is this movie made for? <laughs> that was a question I was asking. <laughs> So they had a script for this movie by Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman. And these two are a writing duo. This was their debut. And they would go on to write some really well-known movies. They would go on and do Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Doc Hollywood with Michael J. Fox. They would work on Wild Wild West, which I'm not going to hold against them because I think like, you know, 100 people wrote Wild Wild West. They would do... I wrote it. 
Yeah, me too. Um, it was a, I had a weekend free. Uh, they also worked on How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the live-action version with Jim Carrey. They worked on Last Holiday with Queen Latifah and also Shrek the Third. And since they did Shrek the Third, they've moved more into TV. But it's really interesting to me how much of the film noir stuff is in trench coat and they go on to do Roger Rabbit, which feels like them trying to do it maybe better. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about the writers uh, too much in my analysis of this film, just because I was convinced it didn't have any. Sure. I think it's a solid point about this film. But um, they made Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's such a good film. How, when did Roger Rabbit come out? 88, and also a touchstone release. So that falls under that more adult Disney banner. So what is this? 83. Five years apart. That's that's quite the evolution in that time. Now, of course, one's based on a book. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I should say, is based off of a book, which you've read, Cam. Yes, it's called Who Censored Roger Rabbit. It's very different than the film and I think really worth reading. It's a very unique uh, novel. But as I say, so the, uh, maybe they had some basis and they worked from in there, but... Still, this is quite the change. But okay, that's interesting. So at least there were some credentials going into it, I suppose. Yeah, and they had a director, Michael uh, Tuchner, I guess is the pronunciation there. He was a German-born director who'd started off, he did a lot of TV in North America. And in 1971, he made a movie called Villain, starring Richard Burton. It was a thriller. And he was more or less a TV guy. Um, he worked on a movie called for TV called Parole and followed it up with Trenchcoat. But really, after Trenchcoat, he mostly just did TV afterwards. So he was not someone who <laughs> launched into the stratosphere with the release of Trenchcoat. Few were. Very true. And for Margot Kidder, this fell the same year as Superman 3, which is kind of notable. Superman 3 is not good. Big box office hit, but... Um, Isn't that the one where she like just goes on holiday? Exactly, yes. So I would guess that that's part of the reason she was probably working on trench coat that she, same she's, time. She's going to Malta. She was off on holiday to go to Malta. Yeah, probably. I, I could buy it. Yeah. I love Malta, personally. Never been. This movie didn't make me want to go, but I'll take your word for it. I, this film, to be fair, I viewed this film from my iPhone uh screen but it's a 4k screen so it has the output resolution um but malta is a gorgeous country i very much intend to retire there where was the little drummer girl shot at the start that was in greece one of the islands in greece oh okay okay because i was like this does for the cinematography of malta what that movie did for the cinematography of greece where i'm like these are beautiful locations that look like they were shot for a sitcom yeah, it's a horrible looking film in that sense. I mean, like Bond goes to Malta at one point and they make it look a lot better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, working title for this movie was Malta Wants Me Dead. Question, is that a better title or is Trenchcoat a better title? I don't know what Trenchcoat has to do with Trenchcoat. She wears one. I, I suppose the whole like gumshoe thing she does later on is kind of tied into that. Yeah. Maybe. But like, do you refer to private dicks as she likes to call it as trench coats no i don't maybe they did in the 80s though sure I, i'll i'm not going to quibble <laughs> on that fact there's there's far more things i want to quibble about with trench coat in it than this yeah so um i couldn't find a budget for this one i don't think it was that much money 
But uh, domestically, it made $4.3 million. It was not released, as far as I can tell, internationally. And I think you are um, maybe underlining that one by saying that it's not available really anywhere on any sort of home uh, media release. So, yeah, I think it may have been a North American-only kind of deal, which wasn't necessarily uncommon, especially for comedies in this era. Um, and so that means its worldwide total was $4.3 million. I'm going to tell you the top three, and I want you to guess where Trenchcoat landed in the year of 1983 at the worldwide box office, which it, you know, it does fall into, even though it didn't have an international release. So number one was Return of the Jedi. Number two was Terms of Endearment, which Shirley MacLaine uh, won an Oscar for, and it, um, Jack Nicholson won an Oscar as well. And number three was Flashdance, which was uh, a real phenomenon and a terrible movie. That's okay. That's pretty terrible. I'll take, I think um, Footloose is the better one of the 80s kind of campy dancing movies. I, I would take Footloose first, but uh, anyway. So Trenchcoat does fall in the top 100, so is that what you're saying? 200. It's a Oof. top 200 list. Okay. That's not to spoil anything, just saying it's a 200 list. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I'm going to go with, it's going to be over 100, I think. I'm going to put it at like... Actually, what was the what was uh, Elvis Presley's date of birth? Oh God, don't ask me that. I don't remember. <laughs> I've got it. I've got it. It's one eight thirty five. So I'm gonna put it at one hundred eighty three. Okay, you're actually more negative than the, ac- the results actually were. It landed number one hundred and six oh. for the year uh, between two movies I've never seen. The movie that beat it by just a little bit was a movie called Mortuary which was a horror movie that featured Bill Paxton in it. I've never seen it, never really heard about it. And it just narrowly beat a movie called Yellowbeard with Graham Chapman, which was like a pirate comedy. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or seen it. Well, Graham Chapman, for those who don't know, is one of the six Monty Python actors, uh, one of the two that has passed away since uh, this film. Um no, I don't think I have. I've seen a lot of Graham Chapman's work, but I haven't seen Yellowbeard. I have a Yellowbeard story. <laughs> this is so weird. Go on. This goes back to my childhood. I'm probably like seven years old, maybe eight years old. And we are visiting my grandparents' house. And as tended to be the case in those days, my parents would go and rent us a movie to watch while, you know, the adults would be upstairs after dinner, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they went and rented something, probably a Disney movie. That would be my guess. And they brought it back to the house and put it in the VCR. And it turned out they put the wrong tape in the box. And the movie that was actually in the box was Yellowbeard. And it showed up on the TV and we were confused. So they had to take it back to the video store to get the right movie. I don't remember what the right movie was, but it was probably something, again, Disney related. Did you, did you get into Yellowbeard or was it like 10 minutes you just cut it off? opening credits like it was a i remember there was like pirate ship kind of stuff and yeah we were just confused that makes a lot of sense with the pirate stuff i can't remember what year monty python's the meaning of life came out but they use a lot of pirate sets with that maybe it's a connection there could be i think that was that movie like 82 it would make sense yeah okay interesting we'll Hmm. have to um dig that one up on uh (laughs) i don't know python hearts that's, that's pie hards, right? I guess so. Yeah, pie hards. <laughs> yeah, no, no one's listening to that or watching trench coat. 
Some other spy films that came out this year. Number six at the Worldwide was Octopussy. Number 14 was Never Say Never Again. And number 85 was The Osterman Weekend, which is more obscure. It's a John Hurt film that we'll tackle some point down the road. And, well, we'll learn what that movie is because I don't really know much about it. And the only other note I have on Trenchcoat was that Siskel and Ebert named it one of the stinkers of 1983. And that's one of those things that pops up whenever you look up trivia on Trenchcoat because there's so little to report. Yeah, when it links you to like the Roger Ebert website, it's the third thing. You know that, that film is quite obscure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe just to flesh out the background a little bit, let's look at our two leads. Now, Margot Kidder has done Superman 1 and 2. Superman 3 comes out this year. What else has she done? Is she famous by this point? I mean, Superman, the films were quite the movement. So I, I imagine she was a, you know, people knew who she was. But has she done anything else? Yeah, she'd done Amityville at this point, which was a big hit. Um, Sisters is back in the 70s. So she's a known name and coming off of the Superman movies. My guess is it was a case of someone who's very much become globally recognized but is struggling to find vehicles to kind of move her beyond that narrow pop culture awareness so she did like a a richard Pryor um comedy that was kind of weekly reviewed just a little bit earlier but it seems like a movie like trenchcoat was seen probably as a bit of a star vehicle for her it definitely feels that way it feels like it is really her film for most of it a lot of times she's just talking to herself yeah i mean you can say robert hayes is is in this movie and he you know of course was in airplane you know a couple years earlier but um it's very much her movie she's getting all the exciting things to do she's getting to put on funny voices and you know outfits and have all sorts of escapades in malta he's just more of the straight man more often than not and and where is robert hayes and all of this airplane's been out airplane two at this point i think think oh i think airplane 2 might have been the year after trench coat but don't hold me to that he's like i'm not doing a sequel i'm going to be a professional actor and then he does trench coat and then he does a sequel to airplane yeah yeah and then has he been anywhere else since i have not stumbled across many robert hayes appearances in my uh, this, this is actually one yeah. of the things i found bizarre about watching this film was seeing robert hayes in something other than a cockpit but the fu- the funny thing is the first time you see him he's in an airplane that's also true yeah um being very creepy with the flight attendant uh, that's what we were referencing up front with the whole lumbar <laughs> um, observation but um i think in a case like this you've got both Margot Kidder and Robert Hayes are sort of your leads in your rom-com that would have been opening to a wide audience. The movie performed miserably and probably put the kibosh on both of them, I would think, to a certain degree, at least. I mean, she goes on to do other things. She's showing up in Superman 4. Um, you know, she does work, but and I think he does as well. But I think in terms of them being kind of headliners, I think Trenchcoat may have been a bit of an issue there. Well, Cam, let's liven up this party. Let's take a little bit of that sodium pentatol and tell our truth. I want to know all about your thoughts on Trenchcoat. This movie is horrendous. (laughs) We have tackled some bad movies, and I think there is a difference we need to underline here because I don't know that we've handled many like Trenchcoat. 
there are bad movies that you watch and you're just like, what a disaster. Like, that's how I felt with Spy Kids 3D, for example, um, mm-hmm. where you're like, this movie's just brutal. Um, the Taken films, we definitely had plenty of things to say about Taken 2, about what a disaster it was and how offensive it was across you know the board often. And those are bad movies where they kind of fire you up, where you're like, oh, I can't wait to talk about how much I don't like this movie. Trenchcoat mm-hmm. is mind-numbing. I found myself just bored out of my mind watching it. And I really like Margot Kidder. I think she's an actress who maybe just wrong time, wrong place in terms of being an actress with her talents. Like, I think it's someone, if she were around now, you know, she may have had just far better opportunities, but she is the kind of all that kept me going through this movie was her energy in a few spots, just a few moments of like, oh, she's pretty funny here. Other than that, like the writing of this movie was just dire and often very confusing and it had no energy whatsoever. I just found myself stunned at just how flat the whole thing felt. I alluded to it earlier. This movie is shot in Malta. It looks like garbage. It looks like it was shot for like basic cable or something like that. Or maybe even just like um, community access television. It just looks cheap and it just has no life to it. So... There's plenty of things we can talk about, but I just thought this was a real dire experience to sit through. It's entirely bizarre when I looked at this film because I was one of those ones I was psyched going into it to think about. These are two actors that I associate with this period in time, and I enjoy the work that I've seen from them both. So, you know, both of them going into what I thought was a serious spy film. Hey, let's give it a shot. Now, you understand pretty early on it wants to be something other than a serious spy film it wants to be a comedy unfortunately it's not funny no (laughs) in the slightest there's one moment that got a laugh out of me which i'll get to and it's probably in my likes column but like in terms of the notes i wrote down like just a complete misfire they had no idea what they wanted this film to be i i I don't know if i'm going to aim it directly at the writers although i think the script is awful and the dialogue is awful but it's you talk about like Malta looking like garbage. Malta is known as like a relaxing island. Like it's meant to be a chilled out place. But it doesn't mean the pace of your film has to be the same way. It's it sleeps its way through ninety minutes. I was checking my watch at fifteen minutes into this film. <laughs> There's a car- I have never experienced that. There's a car chase in quotations at the end of this movie. That I was like, I've never seen a car chase slower than this. This is a 90-minute movie, and I'm like, why? And Disney is notorious. Old Disney live-action movies are notorious for padding out their runtimes with car chases in their movies. Like, it's brutal how many car chases they have in old Disney movies. But, like, this one really took the cake for just dragging everything to a standstill where I'm like, oh, my God, why can't this be, like, 82 minutes? Like, just chop these, like, six or seven minutes out of this movie. Yeah, like uh, I kind of alluded to it before, and so did you. But this film wants to be a spy film. It wants to be a film noir. It wants to be a detective story. It wants to be a comedy. That's four things. Now, when you try and spin several plates, you tend to not be very good at it because you can't really look after one single thing, which is true. And so it definitely fails in all those categories. It is none of these things. Um, and like. We're not onto the knock list yet, so I'm not going to talk about that. 
but <laughs> the knock list. <laughs> when I started watching this, I, I'm, I'm not going. I'm not going in with it yet. But like, I just yeah, think, yeah. like, it took me a while to get a copy of this in the UK to actually watch it, and I felt genuinely bad for you know a lot of our listeners are in the UK. Like, I I want them to be able to enjoy the films with us. I don't want them to watch this. Yeah. I, I'm glad they can't see it. You were spared on that side of the world. Yeah. We we never got the international release. We never thought less of Margot Kidder. <laughs> and they blanketed North America with options to watch Trenchcoat. It's available on every single rental service I have. <laughs> they were like, please, someone rent Trenchcoat. There's probably a list of like... They're like they get alerts when these films get rented, and this is probably the one of the ones. And some guy got an email going, "Huh, yeah, trench coat? Really? Really? Didn't see that one coming. Who knew? Huh? <laughs> that must have been a mistake. No, they watched it all the way through twice. Huh? Robert Hayes got it like a check for like seven cents. He's like, trench coat? <laughs> you mean this isn't for airplane? What other film is this? I've never heard of it." <laughs> Uh, no, okay, so uh, neither of us liked that film. No. I think we can both agree Trenchcoat was a bit of a dud. But let's try and find some good in it. Likes. This is going to be a very quick section, I have a feeling. Yeah, um, Margot Kidder, I think, is just naturally charismatic. She's someone like I could easily watch in pretty much anything. If you have her as your lead, I go, okay, sure, I'll give it a watch. And... I was hoping there would be like some moments to her re- to really like kind of stretch her comedic muscles because you see how good she is in those Superman movies. She's really funny and really you know quick witted and quack, uh, fast talking, just like a really good you know romantic lead in that film and just a great presence. And you know there was a section here where we had her on the old sodium uh, pentothal, which you referenced earlier in this episode, and I'm like, okay, we've seen this in a lot of movies. We've seen it in. You know, Jumpin' Jack Flash had a whole sequence. We saw it in True Lies. What is Margot Kidder going to get to do? And, like, they give her almost nothing to do. There's, like, two scenes of her just being, like, groggy. And you get one fun bit of her on a staircase where she's, like, kind of loose-limbed and flailing about. And I'm like, okay, that is pretty funny. Like, Margot Kidder's actually making me laugh here because of her physical comedy. But I wanted more moments like that. There's not. The only other moment that made me laugh that she got was when she, you know, theoretically kills someone over a balcony and tries to scream and is unable to scream for an extended period of time. Yeah, the scream was the moment I was alluding to. You know, she she can't get the sound out and then she like runs downstairs to this hotel where she's been branded as a troublemaker because she makes too much noise and she's a brash American. And what she lets out as a scream can only be compared to the same noise that uh, Derek Flint makes when he talks to the dolphins. <laughs> and there's like a real build up to it as well, where she's just trying to get some sort of sound out and it's just coming out of silence. Like, I thought that was a, a fun moment. But like you, you talk about the sodium pentothal and, you know, look at Jumpin' Jack Flash. Great example. Hadn't made that connection. But, you know, Whoopi Goldberg turns into like a, a stammering mess like I am every week <laughs> when she has that. She's just talking absolute nonsense. Basically, I must take an injection of it every time we record. But for some reason, the choice from the director or from Margot or from the, the writers was that she has the injection and then she becomes even more relaxed. 
Yeah. Like there's what what like what pace you had is is actually diminished even further because she's talking so slowly. There's a scene where they go to a picnic shortly after her and Robert Hayes, and it's just this like scene that drags on forever because now all of her energy is gone. And through much of the movie, she is kind of that neurotic. Uh, she's a wannabe writer, and you're like, okay, you're, they're at least trying to give her this kind of rat-a-tat kind of dialogue that is kind of one of her strong suits, but like. A lot of scenes like that just drag all of that to a standstill. And, like, they're in Malta. It's a very small island. You can drive around the outside of it in a couple of hours. Yeah. But there are some lovely places you can have a picnic. I've had picnics there. I have family in Malta, just to flesh that out a little bit. They go, and they sit down, I think it's at a place called Clapham Junction. And it's basically just a pile of rocks. (laughs) There's so many nice vistas you could have chosen, but they just go and sit on this pile of rocks. And you just think, what are you doing? It's a horrible looking scene. Logistically, do you think they were trying to shoot in all the cheaper locations in Malta? Well, Clapham Junction, if if that's where I think it is, and I think that's right, is just on the side of a highway. It's completely free to shoot there, I would imagine. Mm, So it may have been a budget thing where they didn't want to deal with like the really busy... Um, tourist areas or the locations that would cost a lot of money in terms of getting permits and all that sort of thing. That's entirely possible because this movie does look like it was shot for like, uh, you know, very cheap TV. Well, there's like one moment where she's uh, in probably the biggest tourist attraction area. I think it's in Sliema, which is, uh, it's not the capital city, but it's next to the capital city in Malta. And it's like, um, it's basically one of the hospitals where the St. John's ambulance started that charity started from there and she's doing the tour and i've done that tour um and that's the only time she's ever in a populated tourist destination and now i know really she doesn't get time to be a tourist because she's pulled into this drug plot very quickly but that's not a drug plot it's actually about uranium yeah i don't know well did you catch on the 10 kilos thing was very similar to the 39 steps no yeah, I'm pretty sure that was a reference point because it, there's also some North by Northwest stuff going on here um, with her on the run and you've got like the dude who gets stabbed and kind of collapses into her arms and she's like, I didn't do it, is accused of the murder. Um, but like the fact they kept referring to the 10 kilos, the 10 kilos, and it's kind of like the 39 steps and we don't know what that is until later on. And I think oh. it was, a, in this case, it was plutonium. Wasn't it the same thing in 39 steps or was it something else? I don't even remember. I can't remember what... No. I can't remember what it was in 39 Steps. What was the substance in Notorious? That was, I think, plutonium or uranium. I mean, they're both made for making yeah. nuclear weapons. So maybe maybe the, these two writers love their Hitchcock. Well, I would say they definitely do, because there's a lot of Hitchcock nods, and just the fact they're so into this uh, Humphrey Bogart film noir, like they clearly know their classic film, and the fact they made Roger Rabbit would also indicate that. And I would tend to agree, like, on the Margot Kidder front. I don't want to sort of skip on by that. She's a lot of fun when she's given the material to be fun with. Like you say, the physical comedy on the stairs is quite interesting to watch. That's sort of fun. And, you know, seeing her do this, the noir stuff, especially later on when for some reason she leans into it a bit more, is kind of fun where she's doing the detective stuff. I guess that's interesting. She gets to spread her wings a little bit, but most of the time she's just spent, like, moaning about the imposition yeah and how malta is trying to kill her but i didn't understand you're saying like malta is like a very relaxed vacation place to go and 
early on, there's a very abrupt setup to this movie where it's just like her, like at a typewriter and it says something like, I'm a court stenographer and I want to be a writer. Opening credits. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, that was abrupt. It, it does that a few times in this film. There's a couple of scenes where I feel like they had a scene and they just cut it out for time. Yeah. There's a, 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 another scene that made me laugh where early on in the film, where she picks up the uh, postcards that have the map to the 10 kilos on them. She then walks away with them and the guy who left them there follows her and you see him get a switchblade out in an assumption to take her bag. You're meant to, you're not meant to think that, but then the next scene is her being taken away in a police car and reporting that her bag has been taken in sort of a very condescending way to David Suchet. Yeah. And you just think, why was there not a scene where he took the bag? I was so confused. I was like, did I just I went like... back. I went back to watch it. I was like, hang on. Where was that scene? It isn't there. I was like, wondering if I'd like blanked out for a moment or something. I'm like, how is that possible that I didn't see the bag get stolen? So yeah, some real questionable editing errors. But I brought up the Malta thing because it's like, there's this abrupt setup that she wants to be, you know, like a crime writer, I guess, or a mystery writer. And uh, so she goes to Malta. And, like, after about half a day in Malta, she's like, nothing ever happens here. And I'm like, were you going here for, like, inspiration for your novel? Because what you're saying, Scott, does not indicate Malta would be the place you would go if you're looking for, like, inspiration for what seems to be an American crime uh, novel. No, you, you go to Malta when you want to, you know, live out your days in the sun. Yeah. Which I very much intend on doing, but... <laughs> We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Agents, we have some breaking intel. That's right. Independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research, these all add up. And we don't have Vesper Lind to bail us out. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. Leave the shopping to Harry Palmer, we say. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here to ask for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon you'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to meet IMF standards and give you an even better listening experience. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com spyhards or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now Cam... Resume the spy jinx. I suppose this is probably in a dislike section, but I suppose it's, it connects. The entire premise of her going to Malta makes no sense. Like, at the beginning, I had, like, she says she's a court stenographer, but you're meant to get the impression that she is a writer. But she's a terrible writer. Unbelievably bad. Like, every bit of prose. She, uh, you know, does through narration in this movie. You're like, this is unbelievably yeah. bad. The narration itself is so heavy handed. I'm sat there going, they're literally adding in lines to just like talk about people's emotions in the scene. It reminded me of another film that did that a lot. I think oh, that's it. David Lynch's Dune. Oh, yeah. Where like there's some really heavy handed narration going on there. But like we made a mention of the scene right at the beginning in the airplane. And throughout, she's like just beginning her story. And by the way, she's not taking a typewriter with her. She's writing the story out by hand <laughs> on on like uh, on like 
legal pad. Yeah, you know what? Some people do that. Uh, that's how George Lucas writes all of his scripts. Yeah, but this guy made Attack of the Clones. Written on yellow legal pads. Uh, that was confirmed. Oh, my Lord. No wonder they're awful. <laughs> but, like, she's on this plane, and she sees Robert Hayes' character for the first time, and he's, like, grifting. And I want to get to the insanity of the Robert Hayes character in a minute, because that is another silly... I, yeah, Put a pin in that. We're coming back to it. Yeah. But then, like, she's watching him flirt with the air attendant, and she's like, his piercing rods ran along her body gripping her tightly and you just think this is some real like mills and boone absolute nonsense she's spilling out but i was meant to think that she was a writer i know but it's awful and then like and then at some point during the film the narration turns into this proper like gumshoe style narration that we saw most recently in spy kids 3 where it's like tuesday afternoon heavy rain i hope it washes away the darkness from the streets of malta are you doing the batman (laughs) Because there's a lot of yes. narration in that, too. I know. <laughs> Where is she? <laughs> um, I, I Honestly, I just couldn't figure out what they were aiming for with the Margot character. I, I, I have to imagine she signed on to do this film because it was like, hey, we want to give you a film. We're Disney. We want you to be the lead of our spy comedy film noir thing. Yeah. And she goes, yeah, sure, I'll be the lead. Because she's just been second fiddle, really. For most films but then did she read the script and just go i guess like like recently harrison ford on hanover street very early on in his career it was a chance to be a lead in a film he's usually been playing second fiddle and to be a love interest he deeply regretted doing the film and luckily he was able to bounce back margot not so much yeah i guess it was just like you get to be the star of this movie this movie is all about you whereas you know obviously playing Lois Lane. It's not your name that's the title. It's, you know, Superman. Amityville Horror, uh, James Brolin is the star, really. And he gets top billing in that one. Um, you know, if she's doing a Richard Pryor film, he's getting top billing. So maybe this was just like, this is your movie, your star vehicle. She is top billed, though, in Brian De Palma's Sisters, but that was also more of a low-budget affair um, in those days. So, yeah, maybe it was just like, this is a big Disney film. Uh, big in quote in you know with a question mark next to it but that will be shown in many theaters so maybe that was just the appeal um but i was really baffled by the spy aspect of this movie because it really seems to want to do the film noir thing that you know is kind of there in the title the trench coat you can say trench coat could also apply to spies but nonetheless it feels kind of film noir um she's doing a bogart voiceover and the character's name is mickey raymond which is a combo of the writers Mickey Spillane and Raymond Chandler, who were crime authors. So that's kind of the world this character seems to occupy. And I'm like, are we just doing spy stuff because spy movies were pretty popular at the time? Uh, Is that why we have this international conspiracy? But were they? Were they popular at this point? I mean, Bonds are still, you know, this is the year of double Bonds where you've got Octopussy and Never Say Never Again, but it's not like Bond is at the top tier of the public conversation. You know, uh, sci-fi is the bigger deal with Star Wars, which is why you have yeah. Disney making Tron and um, and the Black Hole. So I have no idea. Honestly, I have no idea. And that's an ongoing thing that I kept thinking with this movie. I will say one thing nice about it, though. Several points in this movie, I was like, boy, there's a cliche I've seen before. 
and then pausing going, wait a second, the other examples I'm thinking of come after this movie. And I was like, the setup of this, of the writer who gets caught up in a whole mystery or, you know, kind of an adventure is the sort of thing one year later Robert Zemeckis would do with Romancing the Stone with Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. That movie's a massive hit, puts, you know, all three of them on the map in a big way, and it has a sequel, and they go on to have long careers. Um, You have the whole twist. And it's still being done now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that movie is constantly referred to when they do some sort of pairing of actors on an adventure you'll often hear them say it's a romantic the stone type of movie you're gonna see that with that Mm. new sandra bullock one with channing tatum that's coming up for uh, pretty soon so again they often look back on that and that's one year after this movie this movie actually beat them to the punch also there's like the big twist of the elderly couple as your villains and i'm like oh my god cloak and dagger did that and that was one year later so you know that was my one thing I liked. I did not see that old couple coming. I did right away because of Cloak and Dagger. <sighs> I did. I, do you know what? I didn't make the connection to Cloak and Dagger. It is an eighties film. I I hold it in much higher regard than I hold this film. But I just saw the uh, the Irish couple as just sort of harmless people, which is a mistake I made with Cloak and Dagger. To be fair, I should never trust old people. That is a lesson I should be learning. They're old and wrinkly, and it's creepy. <laughs> But um, like when that when that twist happens, I, I I genuinely went like not again. I got cloak and daggered. How dare they? Um, and then they get dispatched in the weirdest way. They don't get blown up in an airplane like they do in cloak and dagger. They just get like pushed into the water. Yeah, in a very like awkward looking scene of Margot Kidder's character driving a car up onto a ferry uh, ramp. Yeah. Oh yeah, that classic eighties joke of women can't drive. Oh yeah. Slapped my knee. Yeah, comic gold in this movie, I suppose. Mm. Um, one other connection I made was we have a scene early on when she lands in Malta and gets in a cab, and we get this fast motion cab ride, which I suppose was supposed to be funny, and we would see that two years later in Gotcha. I knew you were going to mention Gotcha. I thought the same thing with a cab ride round the roundabout. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is this is some sped up Gotcha footage right here, and we bumped on that in Gotcha, and I'm bumping on it again here. Which one's worse? Gotcha. They do it more times. Yeah, I agree. Gotcha just feels like a better film. Sure. Um, I don't think I'll be doing any Spymaster interviews for this one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, like, I guess I've got to give Trenchcoat points. And I don't know if these were just cliches of the time. Like, maybe we'd find some other obscure movies that would be doing these sorts of tropes. But it was just notable to see them done here when the examples we would have you know talked about in the past on this show happened afterwards even the sodium pentothal um jumping jack flash was like three years after trench coat like I, just before we move on to like negatives that we haven't already mentioned the 80s what was up with the 80s and spy films uh they were just throwing s against the wall and seeing what stuck because some of the things we covered so far and we have a list full of some of these fat s crazy spy films from the 80s to cover at some point and they just fascinate me. This is this is so weird. Well, it was like the cocaine decade, they often refer to it as. Um, so a lot of the movies were kind of crazy. Um, I don't know. It was just a very weird era for movies where in the 70s, you've got all these like character-driven films, like very kind of gritty dramas and that sort of thing, really 
dominates the 70s. You know, that's the whole yeah. Scorsese, Coppola, all those guys rising up through the 70s. The 80s becomes this, like, era of, like, slick studio entertainment. But a lot of the movies are very weird. A lot of them have, like, very conservative messages. When you get to things like, you know, your Rambos and some of the other action movies of the era. And then you just have, like, a lot of comedies that are incredibly scattershot where the comedy seems to be more based on the idea of the scenario versus joke to joke throughout the movie. Like the often the humor is just like, what happens if we drop this actor or character in this situation? There's your comedy. Well, allegedly, allegedly. Um, I don't know. I I just have a lot of fun talking about this decade. But I suppose I want to pivot us over to more things we disliked about this film. And trust me. There are. Um, we mentioned Robert Hayes earlier, and I, I'm not really pointing at him for his performance. I don't think that was necessarily bad. I just think what he was given was bad because I still can't make sense of what his plan was. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, she stumbles into this you know, international murder plot that's going on by complete accident, by grabbing postcards. Mm-hmm. He is fumbling around all over the place, and she sees him several times, you know, the, the scene in the plane we talked about, but like selling cheap jewelry to um, a dude in a market, um, just always awkwardly coming around, having different jobs, posing as a lawyer when she gets in trouble and is thrown in jail. I have absolutely no idea what this guy's doing. I don't even know what his job was at the end because online it says he's a CIA agent, but like he's mm. saying he works for like the nuclear something something board or something i was confused as to what he even was yeah well the the job he says he has i i don't know why he's traveling internationally with a gun yeah um but like you just trace it back to that fatal scene at the beginning of the film when they're in the airplane okay so he's working for a government agency okay sure he has to be undercover sure why is he lying about being a doctor on the airplane, which is an offense. Why is he doing that to chat up this air steward? And then like trying to get the deets when the plane has landed as to where he could like meet yeah. up with her. Yeah. Like maybe he's just being bond just far less successfully. Sure. You could maybe dismiss it. But then like when he's giving away the jewelry in the market square where we next see the character. Yeah, why is he doing that? Why is he pretending to be the lawyer? I just... Like, his plan must have been just to get to Malta and wing it. There is a character who shows up in that market scene, played by uh, Gila von Weiderhausen. Plays a character named uh, Ava, who's like kind of the femme fatale of the movie. But I don't think he was posing as a jewelry uh, salesman in that moment just to like make contact with her. That seems... The way it plays out seems very coincidental. Yeah, like, was he... Because, obviously, he, he puts, like, homing devices on everyone. I think that's yeah. the gimmick. But was that to get close to her? Like, had he gone to the market square to get close to Eva? It seems unlikely from his behavior. Like, this is a 90-minute Disney comedy. We shouldn't be asking these questions. Why is it when they go out to restaurant to the restaurant, him and Margot Kidder's character... That like he's lying about like all these different like occupations he's had and everything, and she's like easily seeing all the cracks in his stories. Like I didn't understand. Wouldn't he have a cover? Is that for the audience? Is that for like her? 
I was scratching my head who this character was throughout the entire movie. Because it's like, if you're a CIA agent or whatever the heck he is, you'd have a cover. That makes mm-hmm. sense. But I don't understand why all of his covers are so thin. They're easily like poked holes with. Like She has no problem just tearing holes through every cover story he has and make him look like a pathological liar. I mean, whenever I think about the plot of this film, I basically want to do what Margot Kidder does and just throw my book on the floor and walk directly into the ocean. <laughs> I just, I want to give up on existence because it's rough. And, and, you know, we said it in the beginning, talking about a film like this is tough because, yeah, you know, we've already analyzed it, basically. It's, a, it's an awful film that was poorly put together with almost no merit to it. Yeah. And I mean, we could make non sequiturs about it and, and, and poke holes in it for, for jokes. And we probably still will for the next 10, 15 minutes, but this is a lot tougher to talk about than taken three. Oh yeah. Cause taken three has got that shot of him jumping over the fence and that's, that's, that's comedy gold. Yeah. He, you know, he poisons his own daughter comedy gold. At least they're like reaching for stuff. But the only interesting scene in this entire film, well, uh, maybe two scenes, as you've already mentioned, her screaming and her doing the, you know, the weekend at Bernie's corpse up the stairway thing. Other than that, I don't think I could tell you a single scene. Who is this movie made for? Because Disney in this era, as I've said, like they're wanting to go with more mature content to, you know, kind of widen their appeal. Can you imagine a world where you, as say, like, I don't know, a 20-something-year-old would have taken a date to see this movie? It seems kind of juvenile. See, the thing is, and this is a lot to do with marketing, if I saw a trailer for this, I might have got a sense of the tone of it being a comedy. But on paper, the poster is, is Margot Kidder and Robert Hayes, your favorite new actors in Hollywood in a spy film. And that's what you go and expect when you go in. That's what I expected when this film started. So I I might take a date to this, expecting it to be quite an interesting film. And it slaps you in the face very quickly with its uh, piercing rods. <laughs> but it feels like, even though it's maybe aimed at more adult audiences, it has like the kind of the tone and the silliness of just like a 90-minute Disney kids movie. Like, it doesn't feel like it's being written for adults. Well, this is, I think this is what my problem boils down to, and probably yours too, is that it's such a scattershot approach to writing that it is neither fish nor fowl. And so it just misses every single mark. And I don't think anyone, I mean, the thing is, you look at one of our dinosaurs are missing. It's a weird thing to contrast it with, but that film's got its fans. Sure. It it kind of works on like a campy kids film level. There's ninjas and nans fighting each other. That's got comedy value. Look at the giant dinosaur comedy value. Car chases. Yeah, sure. But I don't know. I I don't think kids would enjoy this. No, we didn't enjoy this. I mean, and I I I I like Spy Kids. Sure. You know, you don't have a heart. <laughs> you still know what a good and bad film is. And so, like when we're talking about it, I feel weird. Like we're just punching down at this film. But what else is there? I this movie gave me nothing. Like. I just was so baffled. Who was this movie made for? Like, I can't imagine an audience sitting through it. And clearly they didn't, judging from the box office. And in a movie like this, and you would say this for Bond as well, um, when you go to these locations, you hope there's going to be supporting characters. They're going to kind of, 
give the movie injections of energy. And like, there was not, I don't think, a single interesting one in the whole movie. The one that comes the closest, I'd say, was Ronald Lacey, who shows up in sort of a surprise as this character, Princess uh, Ada, who's like a drag queen. I didn't expect to see Ronald Lacey doing that. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a fun little twist, I suppose. But that character's in the movie for three minutes, maybe? Yeah, and, and um, it's nice to see a, an out gay character in a Disney film in early 80s. I suppose that's a nice touch that I don't think they were paying attention when that slipped through. The mouse probably would have shut that down very quickly. You're looking at what they're paying for these days. Yeah. But, I mean, the other one's supposed to be David Suchet. That, you know, and, and just for a little bit of trivia for the film, he hasn't played Hercule Poirot at this point this is actually the first inspector he ever played so he was warming up to play hercule poirot <laughs> so if you're a, a poirot hard you should maybe watch trench coat if you can find it <laughs> <laughs> you need to put your trench coat on to find it and what did you think of that character uh, nino played by daniel feraldo who shows up as uh, hitting on her on the beach and then like he's an investigator of some sort i I don't have a read on him because I don't get it. Yeah. Like, he's such a nothing burger of a, of a character. <laughs> like, he's just... His his character of Nino just turns up on the beach wanting to have sex with Margot Kidder. And I'll say, she looks slamming on that in that beach scene. Like, good for her. She looked great. But then he disappears because he's, met, he's played off as this sleazy Italian guy who just wants to have sex with whatever's moving. Yeah. And by the way... They clearly shot this in Malta because you can see in the distances much nicer places they could have shot at. But I don't think they understand where Malta is or who lives in Malta. Right. Because Malta is not an Arabic country. Yeah, that was weird. Nor is it a nor is it Greece. Right. And yet it's either full of Arabic stereotypes or Greek stereotypes. Whereas Maltese <laughs> people are I mean, they've been invaded several times. They have quite a a large set of uh, different um, you know civilizations they've built their own one from. Much like England, to be fair, we're a, you know a bunch of different civilizations all all put into one. But they have no idea what they're working with with that. So, like you get the taxi driver we mentioned the taxi earlier on. I don't even know what his accent was. Uh, yeah, I was confused. It's not Maltese, I can tell you that. Yeah, but. Anyway, so then Nino turns out that he's a, a a spy, I guess, or a detective, maybe, and then gets stabbed. Yeah, that scene did remind me of the um, United Nations scene in uh, North by Northwest, because you have a little bit of that, you know, the wrong woman in this case, you know, having to evade a spy ring. So, you know, I kind of appreciate the uh, the touchstones there of Hitchcock, but... It just feels like, you know, we were saying earlier how we have no idea who this movie was made for, but you'd see when these writers did Roger Rabbit, they knew how to make a movie that worked for both kids and adults. Mm -hmm. That is this movie's biggest failing. And yeah, that character of Nino, going back to him, just a head scratcher. Like he shows up in a Speedo and I was like, oh boy, <laughs> here we go. And just like plays just kind of a pervert for a while. And I'm like, I think I'm supposed to find this guy funny. Like I think they're trying to kind of portray him as like that you know skeezy pervy guy that we're supposed to laugh at but i was not laughing i was just waiting for him to go away and that's not even like a modern sensibilities issue that's just a case of he's written terribly yeah 
Um, I think it's weird. Like, I, I'm sure I've got notes here on this film, but I don't know really what I want to dig into. So I do have a question for you, though. Yeah. How do you fix this film? Because I think the concept is fun. Uh, You've got to dig down, but there is a fun idea in there. I would have just made it a um, noir throwback. Like, that's what the movie is. I would not have worked in all the spy stuff and the really convoluted plotting. Like, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I think I... I I probably agree. I I I was trying to think of like an easy adjustment, and yeah, there's like a scene in this film when they're in a casino, for some reason. Yeah, the most like I, ugly looking casino I've ever seen. Yeah, um, I but I, it doesn't serve any function in the film. I can't really tell you why. I just guess because spy films have casinos. Yeah, it's like just kind of checking off the boxes. It's so weird. This movie, the cinematographer on this movie was Tonino Deli Coli, who. Did movies like Once Upon a Time in America for Sergio Leone, The Name of the Rose, the Sean Connery film. He did Life is Beautiful that, you know, won the best foreign film and run and won Robert Bernini, best actor, you know, a handful of years ago in the late 90s, I think. So this guy made like very, you know, fabulous looking movies. And it's just like, I don't know what was going on with the director of this one, you know, Michael Tuchner here. Like, it just feels like that kind of brought in like a journeyman who was known for TV, who made a TV movie here. Cause uh, there are people working on it that have credentials that would seem to lend themselves towards a movie that looks better than this. I, I'm still sat here scratching my head. Like what about that boat blowing up? Oh, that explosion looked like one of the ones from Diamonds Are Forever at the end there on the oil rig. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was like someone painted it. It, it was, it was, <laughs> Ugly as hell. I think before we tackle the Noclist camp, I do just have to say stop in the name of love. I mean, that whole like drag queen dummy version was strange, but that like musical number coming out as well, I it's again, I think this film didn't know what it wanted to do with itself and it just was just I like a dog chasing cars. But you know, what did you make of that? It was very abrupt. Like that whole sequence at the drag club is over in like a couple minutes and you don't see any of the show really you like she walks out on stage and then stage dives and that sequence is what like 20 seconds maybe yeah and then you're out of there like (laughs) they really want to get back out into hallways and streets which is mostly what this movie consists of uh it's baffling and you know you mentioned that song but like musically there was a couple interesting little touches charles fox um did the score and he evokes bernard herman some of his hitchcock scores at a couple points here also in the final credits he works in a bit of a melody that sounds like kind of a bond theme so i was like okay that's sort of fun but i had a question for you this is a movie made in 1983 the margot kidder character is supposed to be what i mean what like 30 early 30s maybe mm-hmm. yeah yeah what is with the 1940s nostalgia what nostalgia does she have? Well, it's all about this, like, 1940s film noir stuff. I have to imagine it's just an escapism thing for her. I almost feel like, and this is not explained in the film. This is just us headcanoning this whole thing. It's very much like the Lion Tamer sketch, if we're going to call back to Monty Python, where, like, the uh, chartered accountant wants to become a lion tamer because it's cool, and he wants some more excitement in his life. And so I just guess that she looks at like detectives as this exciting life that she does not lead. Because I cannot imagine the life of a court stenographer is uh, particularly riveting. 
No, but I often feel like a lot of these movies are made by people that are older and have nostalgia for these periods and are putting that onto younger characters. And it's always a little awkward because I'm like, you're talking about like uh, having a wings poster in little Nikita. (laughs) Great example. Amazing example. Yeah. Because I'm like, okay, sure. In this case, I'm willing to buy that. This is a woman who sits and watches old 1940s film noir movies. Sure. Or reads, you know, books by Raymond Chandler or Mickey Spillane. I'll go along with it. That's fine. I'm not holding that against the movie too much, but it's kind of like if you make a movie now that like stars nothing but like people who are in their late twenties or early thirties, and it's all eighties nostalgia. It's kind of weird. <laughs> I mean, that is kind of what we live on now, but it wasn't what we lived on then. I feel like we've moved past eighties nostalgia though for like young characters. We're in like nineties and early two thousands nostalgia now. Finally, my flannels come back. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I wish I could grow my hair again. That would be nice. <laughs> now I will just say before we wrap up, the guy who owns that hotel, what a jerk! Oh yeah, like why did he hate her immediately? Yeah, um, I didn't get that. But and any final from you, Cam? I had a couple notes. Um, one is when she's at the beach tanning, and she's like, she's wearing like kind of a like a sundress kind of thing, and she's like pulled it up, like part way up, and it's like laying there tanning. That would make one heck of a tan. <laughs> the tan lines on that would be pretty insane. It would be like half your body is tan and the other half is not. That jumped out at me. That's like a weird version of the Ross tan from Friends. Yeah, uh, that was kind of strange. Mm. And also, um, the Robert Hayes character hands out necklaces with like a word on them. So like the Irish couple gets one that says Blarney, for example. Or um, Nino, who's obsessed with Elvis Presley, gets one that says Elvis. What did it say on it? I think it's like Elvis lives, right? Or something like that. Elvis lives. What would yours say? Oh, it can't be spy related. I think. Yeah. Um, I think I think because Robert Hayes is clearly a terrible judge of character, um, he would just go off like features, or like maybe because I'm British. Sure. Because he gives Blarney to the Irish couple. Yeah. So what's it like a British version of Blarney stones? Um, top hat, <laughs> monocle man. Sure, monocle man. <laughs> it, it, it just say monocle. He's just giving me something. A necklace that says monocle for some reason. And for Canadian, it's got to be just like <laughs> maple leaf. Oh sure, yeah. You've got way more. Like I, I don't think you could give us like sausage and mash or fish and chips in a necklace. So like, oh, now I'm thinking about food. Actually, I'm just hungry. Maybe that's what that is. Um, maple leaf, yeah, or moose, beaver, <laughs> beaver. You get you, you get to wear some beaver cap. That's not in a Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think we're at the uh, at the question time. Cam, can you give me a fin? Oh, oh. <laughs> Yeah, you see, you had to think about that too. This film like just drops out of your head. Yeah. Um. Okay. Serious question. I think trench coat. (laughs) (laughs) Trench coat. Is it making the knock list? Cut off the C. Just N O. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to. I tried to see out of trench coat. I'm like, what's he trying to say? Trenote. <laughs> yeah, the knock list is not um, something we can apply to the movie Trenchcoat. There is 
Well, what do you think, Scott? <laughs> oh, I, I think you're queuing up my next question very beautifully there, Cam. Yeah. But I think before we get there, I think you maybe should prepare an instrument of destruction whilst I do that. Um, it's such an easy answer. It's, this is... Even the bad ones, some of them I would probably watch again. Yeah. like In like a train wreck kind of thing. Like I would watch Men in Black 2. I could. Like the thing is, we're doing commentaries on the Patreon. And if you were mm-hmm. like, you know, hey, Cam, we've gotten a lot of demand. They'd like to get a Taken 3 commentary. I can't imagine who the people are that want that. But nonetheless, if you said that, I'd be like, okay, cool. I'm down. But if you were like, we will have to do a trench coat commentary. I'd be like, do we have to? There's going to be, like, dead gaps where we have nothing to say. Nor did the film. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, it's It's got to be a no. I, I, Despite trying, my one good thing that I had to mention was a scene about her screaming. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't even say that Margot's performance was great because she wasn't given any good to work with. And again, I feel like we as a society failed Margot Kidder. I just think she had so much potential. I really like Margot Kidder a lot. I wish I could track down the great lost films of Margot Kidder, but it doesn't seem like there's that many really out there to to find. And this is not one worth digging up like that face in the sand. (laughs) Because we've dug up a couple of... Good call back to the film, actually. Who, Who buries a body in like two inches of sand? That would actually be really difficult, wouldn't it? That close to the water? To be, to do that hole, maybe if the tide was out, maybe not. But like the next day, it would just become available because the sand goes up and down every day. Like that's the dumbest. That's like dumb as rocks. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, but uh, you know, this film is on par. Um, <laughs> well, I I think you've queued it up a little bit, Cam. I think I have another question for you. Yes. Hmm. Because I wouldn't watch this film again. I wouldn't recommend anyone watch this film. No. This film offends me. And we have a special place, a seventh or perhaps an eighth circle of hell that we reserve for some of the worst spy films we've ever encountered. Cam is Trenchcoat making the disavowed list. I think it kind of has to because we've tackled a number of comedies, right? And not all of them made the knock list. We've had some where we're like, yeah, it was, you know, a little hit or miss. Like, I wasn't the world's biggest fan of Jumpin' Jack Flash, for example. Um, It was fine, but it's not one that, to me, I would even ever consider for the knock list. But I think there needs to be a line between sort of your middle-of-the-road comedies versus something like this that is so dead on arrival that, like, I think comedies (laughs) are interesting because... They are rarely recognized when they're great. You know, you don't get the Oscars nominating um, Mm -hmm. comedies for, like, Best Picture that often. But they're also not often recognized for being truly terrible. They tend to go, oh, whatever, it's just a dumb comedy. And then they'll focus all their hatred at, like, that really, like, ill-conceived prestige movie that's, like, two and a half hours and makes everyone just, like, feel like they want to die sitting through it. I think a movie like Trenchcoat skates by in the world. Because people don't take the time to underline how terrible it is as a comedy and how badly it fails. And I think that's our job. So it is a yes to the disavowed list for me. Someone once said to me on Twitter, and actually um, previous guests on the show, uh, Lauren, who joined us for the Hanover Street 
episode uh, said this uh, about her podcast too. They watch the film so you don't have to. We have taken the trench coat bullet for you. Never, and I advise you, this is parental guidance here. We're putting a label on this film. Never seek this film out. I was kind of surprised by this one because I did not expect it to be a great film going in. I really didn't. But usually when we find these curiosities, they're at least interesting in some way where we go, oh, well, that was kind of a bad movie, but we enjoyed this part or that part. Like There was things we could unintentionally even find funny. Whereas here, there was just nothing. It is just vacant as an experience. Yeah. And as such, I'm going to agree with you that we are going to disavow that sucker. Beautiful. We're sending it down to that eighth circle of hell. And I uh, I have to think that maybe all these streaming services are actually doing some sort of patriotic service by not having <laughs> this out in the United Kingdom. Here's a question. Which one would you rather rewatch, Trenchcoat or Spy Kids 3D? Little Drummer Girl. <laughs> oh, Little Drummer Girl. <laughs> oh, what about Spy Kids 3D? I'd take Spy Hearts 3D, Little Drummer Girl. I would take Men in Black 2. Internationals maybe a bit of a punt. The Harry Palmer TV films are maybe a bit of a punt. Uh, I would watch one of our dinosaurs is missing before watching this again. Yeah, the ones I'd put up against this are those Harry Palmer TV movies. I would probably choose Bullet to Beijing over this, but Midnight in St. Petersburg would be below this one. You're just picking Mia Sara over Margot Kidder, clearly. I guess so in this circumstance, yeah. But uh, you know what? Every, what a weird question to get. <laughs> but everyone, go rent uh, Brian De Palma's Sisters. It's great. It's great. And if you've never seen the original Superman movies, treat yourself to those. The first two are fantastic. Yeah, stop at part three. Don't even watch part three. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, just don't bother. But there you go, folks. Oof, that was a brutal one. Thank you for joining us, of course. And, uh, yeah, we don't think you should go and watch this film. But... Uh, it looks like Trenchcoat is not making the knock list, but rest assured we have damned it to the disavowed list never to be spoken of again, hopefully. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Now, Cam, the question to you is, what are we doing next week? Well, we had a lot of Hitchcock nods in this movie, but next week we're actually going back to Hitchcock. We're tackling 1956's The Man Who Knew Too Much, the remake. We covered the 1930s version. Now it's time to look at the 1950s version. Yeah, I'd be interested to see how someone remakes their own film. It's not a phenomenon I've ever particularly encountered in Hollywood. I'm sure it's happened from time to time. Um, But from what the feedback we got online is that the remake is regarded as better. It's bigger. It's a more like Hollywood film versus the original, which is... You know, it's it's fairly short, um, lower budget. This is kind of like your big Hitchcock star vehicle. Yeah, and we're actually joined for the second time by Calvin Dyson's coming back on the show. He has, a, apart from a love of Bond, he has a massive love for Alfred Hitchcock. So we've been waiting for the perfect film to get him back on for, and he will be joining us next week. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956 and join us next week. Do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, 
and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, don't put me on hold. Do you love spy books, movies, and TV? Then the Spybrary podcast is for you. Since 2017, host Shane Whaley and Spybrary field agents around the world dispatch reviews and interviews with authors, historians, and fellow spy fans. We discuss everything from John le Carre, Len Dayton, Paul Vidich, Graham Greene, Mick Heron, Charles Cumming, Ben McIntyre, and many more. Spybrary is available on all good podcast apps and at spybrary.com. 